0: I was on a flight home from somewhere some years ago when they put the movie of the day on the plane was going to be Amazing Grace and I knew it was about to be released in Australia so I was really glad to have the chance to see the movie before anybody else. It's a movie that's entitled, after the hymn, The Amazing Grace, it's the best-known hymn in English literature, and I was really keen to watch it, partly because I knew it focused on the role of William Wilberforce in the abolition of slavery in England, and I didn't know that much about William Wilberforce, nor did I know that much about the whole process of the abolition of slavery. So I was really interested in the film. In the film, you meet the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, his name's John Newton. And um, uh, while I loved the film and really enjoyed it, what surprised me was at the very end they concluded the film by playing the hymn Amazing Grace with the bagpipes and quite unexpectedly I just burst into tears. It was one of those reactions when you're sitting in an aircraft surrounded by other people that would not only surprise me but it was mildly embarrassing and people start thinking, what's wrong with you? And it so, it so took me uh, by surprise that after the experience I got home, I, was, I said to myself, what was it about that hymn that had such an impact on me? And I started to research it a little bit. It's extraordinary that for over 250 years, this song has moved the hearts of men and women to tears. It's probably the most frequently played hymn at funerals. It's a song that was written back in the 1700s. And yet, here's the amazing thing you could go into any pub in Australia, and if you could start it to sing Amazing Grace, uh, people around you could sing it with you. And I promise you, you couldn't say that about any other hymn or any other Christian song that you could imagine. And yet, a hymn from 250 years ago is so widely known, you could sing it in a pub, and at least some would uh, sing along with you. The question is why? Why is it? Why is this particular song, which, uh, when it's performed by Scottish bagpipe bands or by rock stars, goes to the top of the pop charts over and over again? Why does this song have such power to touch the human soul? And it was the answer to that question that I wanted, the, I wanted to puzzle through. I want to say to you this morning, I think Amazing Grace is often not understood, um, but it's what we hope for. I don't care who you are. I think deep within the heart of every human being there is a deep longing for amazing grace. There's a hope for amazing grace and yet at the core of our struggling humanity we doubt that we'll ever experience it. I think that at least in part is why it's such um, an an impacting and emotional experience. To sing the words and to hear the sound of the tune, um, it's the cry of the human heart. And I think what uh, has so encouraged my heart is that I think it's what God's Spirit wants to testify to you today about all over again. Amazing grace is what we need. And the beautiful thing is this amazing grace is exactly what God is offering to every human heart that's willing to receive it. It was Jesus himself who told the ultimate story of amazing grace, uh, the story about the father with two sons. It's often called the Uh, parable of the prodigal son but it's interesting to realize the occasion on which Jesus spoke that beautiful parable see in Mark chapter 2 the Bible records that Jesus was just beginning his ministry and one day he was passing by a tax collectors booth and he invited a young man called Levi to step out of his business world and join him in uh, sharing the grace of God Later that day, uh, that tax collector put on a party in his own home and hosted Jesus and his disciples. And it was while that tax collector was hosting that party that a group of religious people arrived at the door, knocked on it to ask a question, how come a man who claims to be an emissary from heaven spends his time with people like that? Now, I guess as Australians, we perhaps don't have quite the same violent reaction to the idea of a tax collector as they did in Jesus' day. To us, a tax collector is a government official doing a job that we all know needs to be done. But in Jesus' day, a tax collector was not just a government official. In fact, he was a businessman who had purchased a franchise from the Romans to give him the right to tax his own uh, countrymen and line his own pockets at their expense. He was like a fifth columnist. To the Jewish people, and as a result, there's a very important question: How can a holy man, uh, a man of God, a man who claims to be the Son of God, um, spend time with people like that? And that was the the occasion on which Jesus spoke three extraordinary parables in Luke 15. We we'll just take a moment to look at one of them. In fact, the Bible puts it this way in Luke 15: Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Jesus realised they had no understanding of the heart of God. I wonder if many of us really understand how deeply God is committed to restoration. I wonder if we understand how deeply God is passionate about the idea, the reality, the possibility of restoration. And as a result, Jesus then told three parables. The first parable was about a lost sheep, um, about a shepherd who left all of his sheep and went out all through the night. He had 99 that came home and one that didn't. Uh, The average person would think, well, why worry about the one? 99 out of 100 is pretty good. I mean, shut the door, turn on the TV, uh, have a shepherd's pie for dinner, and bad luck about the one. But you see, that's because you don't understand the value of one to the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And out that shepherd went into the night, and when he finally found that lost sheep, he put it on his shoulders, carried it home, and Jesus said there was more rejoicing in heaven over that one than over the 99 fat found ones that never got lost in the first place. Then he told a story about a woman who had ten coins. Jesus never told a single parable in which a woman had a negative role. He knew women had had enough time. Uh, without him adding to it and as it was he had now a woman who had 10 coins and she lost one she said now what would a woman do if a woman lost something she'd come up with a strategy she'd light a lamp sweep the house and search diligently until she found it and then she'd call her friends together and say rejoice I found a lost coin and Jesus said in the same way I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents and now he tells us the uh, the essential and and most perhaps the best known of story of amazing grace in the bible it's the story of the prodigal son the parable of the father with two sons because now jesus said let me really explain to you the heart of god man had two sons Younger one and an older one. The younger one came to him and said, "Dad, give me my share of the estate," which is an extraordinarily rude and uh, 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 just a, an unfamily-like thing to do. Well, the father, instead of boxing his ears, said, "Son, I wouldn't trap you here. If, if you feel you have to need to have to leave, I'll give you your share of the estate." And it wasn't long before he packed his bags and headed off to the big city, the lights, the 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 wine, the women, and the song. Jesus said it was while he was out there that uh, he spent everything and eventually along came the global financial crisis and before he knew it, his back was to the wall, uh, looking for a job, found himself a job keeping pigs. And he was so hungry and so destitute that Jesus said he he would have been happy to eat pigs' food. And it was at that point he began to reflect on the relationship that he used to have with his dad. And here, you see, it was Jesus who constructed this story. It was Jesus who put the words in this young man's mouth because Jesus knows the struggle that we have with amazing grace. Jesus put these words in his mouth. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I'm starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father And this is what I'll say to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. See, that's not amazing grace. That's ordinary grace. That's what broken human hearts uh, perhaps think qualifies as amazing grace the opportunity to go back and say to someone you have offended, I did the wrong thing, Um, I have ruined our relationship, I don't deserve to be restored, Uh, but perhaps you could give me the opportunity to work really, really hard to try to do better um, and, and slave my way to an improved performance. That's not Amazing Grace. But it's what the broken human heart expects is about the best you can long for or the best you can hope for. The opportunity to try harder the second time around. He was planning to go back to his dad and say, Dad, I have sinned. I get that. And I am no longer worthy to be your son. Well, that's an interesting thought. So sonship is based on worthiness, isn't it? So you thought there was a point in which you were worthy to be a son, but now you've blown it. You're no longer worthy. So what's your solution to that? Make me like one of your hired servants. Dad, give me a shovel. Give me a broom, Dad. I don't ever expect to be restored to a place of of, of sonship. No, that that's more than a heart can hope for. Make me a servant, Dad. Give me a little shack out the back. Give me a broom and, and give me a shovel, Dad, and I'll, I'll work every day. I'll, I'll, I'll work harder than I've ever worked before. I'll white-knuckle it, Dad. Uh, I'll give it my best shot. Make me like one of your hired servants. That is not amazing grace. But it's what the human heart imagines might be the best outcome when you've made dreadful mistakes. Well, up he got, Jesus said, and he headed on home. But you see, Dad wasn't sitting in the back room of the house with his brow knit and his arms folded across his chest, thinking angry and destructive thoughts, a little young fool. I don't know where he is, but whatever he's doing out there, I hope it's hurting. No, he, he, he wasn't sitting in the back room thinking, well, when he comes home, he'll have to crawl across that floor and kiss me on my foot before i'll ever give him half a chance again that's not what he was doing jesus said while he was still a long way off his father saw him because his father was not in the back room he was at the front gate staring down the road wondering if today just might be the day that reconciliation could be possible the bible said jesus said when when he saw him he was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. You've got to understand how extraordinarily contradictory this parable would be to the way in which Eastern gentlemen conducted themselves. Eastern gentlemen don't run anywhere, Eastern gentlemen walk with great dignity. But Dad threw his dignity to the winds because he was a possibility of restoration. He hitched up his skirts and he ran from the front gate off down the roadway through the village. Who cares who sees uh, what he's doing? He ran to his sons. son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him on the face. There is a God in heaven who runs to heartbroken people and showers them with kisses. It's not what you expected, but it's what's available. Well, he runs to his son, he showers him with kisses, and the son begins his miserable little speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. His dad doesn't even want to finish the speech. He doesn't want to hear the story, because it's not what his father is after. He's turned, and he's on his way home. Just walking down that road was proof enough to his dad that his son had hit a brick wall, and knew that he had no future other than to return to his home. And now we get a picture of amazing grace because that's what's in God's heart. See, God doesn't have a heart to pour ordinary grace over you, uh, a a hard uh, frown upon the face and a furrowed brow and kiss my foot. The father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Now you can imagine the servant's not been too excited about that. He uses a word here in this in this passage, the word "tollane." It's the most expensive robe that a household would, would have. It would have been kept in a special place and it was used only to, to dignify a, a, a visiting celebrity. The priest of the community might arrive. You might put the that robe on him to demonstrate he was your honoured guest. Go bring me that expensive robe. Well, you could imagine. Oh, I don't think this is a good idea, Father. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, use that robe. He's come straight from the pig pen. He needs a good wash down. Uh, uh, you put that robe on him, you'll spoil it. I, I, I think we ought to perhaps get the Shearer's dressing gown. Now, that'll do him until we clean him up a little bit and make him presentable. But the Father wasn't interested in the Shearer's dressing gown. He said, you bring to me the best robe. Have a look at him. His head is down, his heart is broken, and today I will restore his dignity. I want you to bring me the best robe, and today I'm going to drape that over his shoulders and say this is the best day son this is the most amazing moment this is a this is a moment for amazing grace not ordinary grace forget the shearer's dressing gown bring me the best robe in the house we're going to restore his dignity oh and by the way I want somebody to bring me a ring because I want to put a ring on his finger Oh, father, I wouldn't do that. No, no, that ring on the finger—that's thats restored authority, Dad. I mean, he's—he's uh, he, he's already blown a thirty-year superannuation, mate. He's gone and blown it on wine, women, and so on. I wouldn't wouldn't put a ring. Don't don't. Get, he'll be start signing checks again. You you don't want that. You we need to straighten this guy out before we put any authority in his hand. Excuse me. That might be your version of grace, but it's not mine. Put the best robe on his shoulders. And I want a ring on that young man's finger because today I will not only restore his dignity, I'll restore his authority, put a ring on his finger. And I want someone to bring me some sandals. He's come home in bare feet and only slaves in this community walk around in bare feet. You put some, you put some sandals on his feet because he doesn't come home as a slave. He comes home as a son. And by the way, I want someone to kill our father fatted calf. Oh, father, I wouldn't kill the fatted calf. I I think that's a bit over the top. I mean, after all, we haven't invented refrigeration yet. You go kill the fatted calf, you're going to have meat here for 100 people and it's only you and mum and the big brother and the oats, only four of you. I would suggest that we kill the fatted duck. That that probably is quite satisfactory for the moment. Well, you don't understand, do you? Oh, you thought this was just a little homecoming dinner for me and mum and and, and his baby? And his big brother, no, you, you don't understand, my son has come home. I want the entire community at a barbecue tonight. I want, I want everyone in this community to be as excited about my son's homecoming as I am. Kill the fatted calf. I'll restore his joy. I'll restore his relationship to the family. I'll restore his authority and I'll restore his dignity Because what I have for this boy is amazing grace, not ordinary grace. It's interesting when his brother walks in the door, he understands that this kid doesn't even deserve ordinary grace. In fact, when the big brother comes home, Jesus said he hears the sound sound of the party. He says, what's going on? He says, your brother's coming. He says, well, I'm not coming in. And now Dad has to go out and find a second lost son, someone who was lost in the house, he didn't want to come and celebrate with a boy that was lost outside the house. His father comes to him. He says, "Come on in, son." He says, "I'm not coming in, dad, because I don't understand you. I've been working here like a slave, mate. I, I, who, who do you reckon is 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 putting in the work around here? I didn't come from the pub, dad. I came from the fields, and I come walking in here, and here's this useless idiot who's blown a thirty-year superannuation." He's been out there with doing wine, women and song. I come home and it's whoopee time. You've never done whoopee time for me. He said, well, son, um, you need to understand two things. Firstly, everything I have is yours. If you don't understand what an inheritance you have here, then you're as thick as two planks. But here's the second thing. Your brother was dead. He was dead to us. And if he'd stayed out there, he would have been dead to us forever. But he's come home, son. And if there is anything I'm excited about, it's the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. I want you to come on in and try to see things differently. See, that's amazing grace. And that's what makes this hymn so profoundly important because Jesus doesn't have ordinary grace. The, the, the gospel to you today is not, you've blown it, have you? I mean, it all over the city today, there'll be people who feel, they'll wake up today with a headache and unhappy memories of what happened yesterday and the day before that. And the feeling like, it, it, it's irrecoverable. And you know you need more than ordinary grace, you need more than an opportunity to try harder. You need total forgiveness. You need the kindness of total restoration and not just a new beginning but a sense of restored dignity, a sense of restored authority, a sense, sense of restored relationship and a, a sense that maybe the joy could come back again. That's what Amazing Grace is all about. And the reason that this, this hymn is so powerful is because it's exactly what John Newton, who wrote this hymn, had experienced. You see, you hear it in this in the in the hymn. You ever sung the hymn? Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. That saved a wretch like me? You wouldn't put that song in a that word in a song today, would you? I mean, you know people singing Oh, there was a wretch. No, you don't want people singing that stuff. You And yet that's exactly what he knew he was. It's a bit dramatic, isn't it? No. Not when you know a little of his life. See Born in London in 1725, he went to sea by the age of 11, and whatever a sailor was in his day, that's what John Newton was. Fact is, he ended up working on a a merchant ship doing slave trading on the triangular route. They used to load up their ships in London in England and sail off uh, to the uh, west coast of Africa use all the goods in the ship to trade for human beings, stack them in like sardines and sail west to the, uh, out to the Indies where they'd then sell their slaves for sugar and then do the third leg of the trip back home and make a fortune. You see, John Newton was someone who for years did that trade. Human beings, outbreaks of cholera and disease, throw them overboard, beaten and starved and subject to unimaginable suffering, lying there, packed in under under the boards in stifling heat and lying in urine and excrement and vomit. Women raped by the crew, more than 20% would die on ways, throw them overboard, sold on arrival to plantation owners and that was his life. He was one who derided anyone who had Christian faith. He knew he had a foul mouth. And if it hadn't been, but for the grace of God, he would never have even been known again to his own family because he was virtually himself a prisoner amongst slaves in West Africa until by the grace of God, he was picked up by a passing ship. And then on the return journey, that ship was ripped apart by a storm. And for four weeks, drifting, starving, being pounded by the wind and the waves, under threat of being thrown overboard by the captain who thought he was a a Jonah, Newton, along with 11 others, eventually landed in Ireland and he knew that he had only survived because of the kindness and the grace of God. In fact, he said himself, about this time I began to know that there is a God that hears and answers prayer. You hear that in his hymn too. Through many dangers, toils and snares I have already come, it's grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. You may be listening to me this morning, and you realize your life could have ended many times. There were many times where you, you want to look back and wonder, why didn't that take me out? Why am I still here? Why am I still alive? He knew that there were a number of times he could have lost his life. Half drunk one time, he nearly fell overboard. A passing sailor grabbed him by the coat and drew drew him back from certain death. There was that night that in a storm that he was about to go out onto the deck and the captain called him back to get a knife. The man behind him stepped up, took his place and was immediately swept overboard to his death. There was that time he was uh, about to row away from the ship in a rotten longboat. The captain called him back. The next man took his place, rowed away from the ship, fell through the bottom of that boat and drowned at the age of 82 newton said these words he said my memory is nearly gone but i remember two things that i am a great sinner and christ is a great savior and on his tombstone these words are written john newton clark once an infidel and libertine A servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. Why does this song touch people so profoundly? Because this was not a song written to fill out a, a CD or a worship album. This was not a song that was written by contemplating what kind of words might touch people this was a song written by a slave trader who knew he was he was a recipient not of ordinary grace but of amazing grace he never forgot it and when he wrote that hymn he set the words to a west african sorrow chant because you see it's likely that john newton first heard that tune uttering up from the mouths of groaning slaves. It's a West African sorrow chant. He mixed the two together and out of the sorrow of his own background, in his own reception of amazing grace, he penned a hymn that perhaps better than any other reminds us that God loves people and God doesn't have ordinary grace for people who have lost their way. What God has is amazing grace and by the grace of God, just let me read to you this wonderful hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Is that what you need today? You need something that's a little more uh, powerful than ordinary grace, just another chance to try harder the next time around. You know you need total forgiveness. You know you need restored dignity. You need restored authority. You need a restored place in the family of God's grace. You know that you you need restored joy. That's what God has for people. And all he asks of you is that you would turn your heart towards home. Father, I pray today for every ear that is hearing this story again this morning. I thank you that through Jesus you have reached into the heart of broken people and said, come home, come home. I'm not sitting in the back room angry and looking for ways to punish you or humiliate you. Return, come unto me all you who labour and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Father, I pray today in Jesus' name, where there are hearts that feel as if it's not possible, that today they might allow in this thought amazing grace, amazing grace, because that's what we need. In Jesus' name. Amen.